0: The Chafer Conference starts this coming Monday. Uh, Sunday will be a normal schedule, but I believe we need some help uh, from some men following the morning uh, morning service to get everything together and uh, I mean move some chairs around and establish some things. Also a reminder that if you 're here you 're local you 're going to come to the conference, even if you're going to be here for only one session or two sessions that you need to register so that uh, we'll have a name tag for you. That's going to be an integral part of our of our security for the conference with a lot of uh, faces that are unknown and unseen, uh, are new, that uh, we're going to use that to make sure we can identify people who are, uh, who are here and supposed to be here. Also, uh, there won't be class next Thursday night. We never have a Thursday night class the week of the Chafer Conference, everybody. We tried that the first year or two, and everybody was so worn out and exhausted that the only people that showed up for class were the few stragglers who stayed in town after the conference. So uh, we decided that was the better part of valor, was just to relax and uh, rest on having done a great job with the conference. The uh, only other thing that I can think of to announce is on Saturday, April the 7th, we're going to have our church picnic out at Orlando's again. So put that on your calendar, and we'll be uh, going out there for for the spring picnic, and we can pray for the weather because um, the way things have been going since the first of the year, we have had one Saturday... Uh, when it did not rain, and I think it 's supposed to rain this Saturday, so if uh, if that is the trajectory for the spring, then we may get rained out again, which has certainly happened before, so you can be in prayer for the weather that we can have a good relaxing time and fun time with the with the church uh, church family going out there. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, One prayer request that you should... uh, Uh, Pray for us tomorrow. uh, Dr. Meisinger, George, is going to be having another treatment on his back, and this is an outpatient treatment. The last one was uh, very successful and probably helped get rid of about 80% of the discomfort and pain that he's gone through, and hopefully this will get rid of the rest of it, and then we need to pray for his recovery. Because of that pain in his back, he really hasn't uh, walked a lot. He hasn't... um, He hasn't been um, uh, working, you know, exercising, anything like that. So he's got to build up his endurance and his muscles and things of that nature. And he's going to be ending his uh, eighth decade here about the middle of April. That means he'll be turning 80. That's your last year in your um, eighth decade. So he will be... um, He'll be uh, recovering and doing well. So we need to pray for George. Pray for Jim Myers. He's in Brazil right now. and Got another, I think, uh, week or week and a half of ministry down there, as well as for the speakers, the safety, security, uh, travel for the Chafer Conference. So keep those things in, in prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Now, Father, we're so grateful we can come together this evening to fellowship around your word. Father, as we go through life, there's so many little things that, that get in the way we think of living. There are things that go wrong, little problems and difficulties, and sometimes they're major, but we know that your word brings us back to reality, focuses on the fact that this is uh, <clears throat> your plan, and we are cert- live on this earth to serve you. We're reminded, Scripture says, we've been bought with a price, and therefore we are to serve you. Father, we pray that uh, we might be mindful of these spiritual responsibilities, living our life for you and not for ourselves, and that as we've been studying in, in 1 Peter, to have this mind that is in Christ, this, this resolution, this commitment to focus on the wor- your, you and your word and what you have provided for us in terms of uh, the spiritual skills to handle the details of life. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we'll be reminded that we're to live today in light of eternity and in light of future uh, rewards and judgments. And Father, we pray that you might encourage us as we go through this study. In Christ's name, amen. We are in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. We're down to verses uh, 5 and 6 as we are talking about this problem of how to handle and faith opposition. When you're being ridiculed, when you're being mocked, when you're living in a system, it may be with your family, it may be employment, it may be in a school, it may be in a culture that is that is difficult. Not long ago, I had an email from a family that lives up in an, a pretty remote area along the Atlantic coast in Canada, and they are live streamers, and they uh, listen, watch the videos, family with uh, children who are in school, and they told me that they don't know any other uh, Christians that are even remotely interested in the Bible. There may be some who are in various denominations, but as far as their kids go in school, they really don't know any other people any other believers, so it's a great mission field, but we live in a world today when if you're uh, Caucasian, if you're educated, if you've been exposed to the propaganda through the liberal uh, channels on TV, then you're too skeptical about Christianity to really be interested. That's one of the things, uh, you know, this last year we, as a congregation, lost two great evangelists, uh, Bert Seville and Gene Brown. And both of these guys would talk to just about anybody who would give them the time of day, but they had both been telling me over the last uh, 10 years that if it was somebody who was white, middle-class, professional, college-educated, they wouldn't give them the time of day. But they could talk to a lot of others. They could talk to blacks, they could talk to Hispanics, and they would love to talk to them. About spiritual things and hear the gospel and and be responsive in in many cases, but we live in a world today where uh, we there are pockets of good Christian uh, folks and teachers and Bible churches. Houston's a great area, but there are also areas in this country where there's there's nothing. People are just surrounded by by liberals by those who are anti-Christian, anti-Bible and so enmeshed in the word, and they have to work in those kinds of environments. And that's not unlike the situation with these Jewish background believers in the the upper part of what is now Turkey, upper central part. Uh, They're part of the, as Peter identifies them at the beginning of 1 Peter, they're part of the diaspora in uh, the uh, section of uh, Bithynia and Asia and uh, Galatia, Cappadocia, that sort of cent- central and north-central part of, um, of what is today Turkey. And they're facing this kind of mocking, and the pattern for us is always the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in uh, these verses, just to review a little bit, in 1 Peter 4, 4, he said, "...in regard..." To these, in regard to these, that is, in regard to uh, uh, these various uh, these Gentiles and their lifestyle, he says, in regard to these, and that is also includes the sins that are just listed there at the end of verse three. In regard to these, they think it is strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. So the identification there with the dissipation, as I pointed out last time, is a life where you're just living for your own personal pleasure. You're living to for your own accomplishments, perhaps, living to fulfill your own ambitions. And in many cases, in most cases, this has the idea of just sensual pleasure. And so even though you may be working hard and you may be advancing, ultimately the reason... That many people accumulate wealth is just to spend it on their own, uh, their own pleasure and their own desires. And uh, we live in a world that is uh, over focused uh, and has been for quite a number of years. Uh, because we, uh, if you remember the that it, even during World War Two, there was uh, problems when American soldiers went over to Britain and. Uh, the British would complain about the Americans, said they're overpaid, they're oversexed, and they're over here. That was the problem. And so this is, seems to have characterized uh, the U.S. culture uh, for some time. So, But in a world where you're surrounded by people whose focus is totally on the details of life is the source of happiness and pleasure and meaning in life, and then they ridicule you because you don't go along with them in those pursuits. Then you have a problem, and often you're treated unjustly. Just as Jesus was reviled and blasphemed as he was on the cross, that's the same words that are used here are the, describing this mockery and reviling. Are the same words that were used in in the Gospels to describe. Uh, the mocking of the people walking by on the street, the blasphemy of the soldiers, and yet he as the just, as we've read back in 318, is dying for the unjust. And so the reminder here is that ultimately there is going to be justice. There's going to be a payday someday, as I pointed out last time, and that God as the righteous judge of the universe is going to do the right thing. The foundation passage I talked about last time in Genesis 18.25 is as uh, <clears throat> Abraham was learning of God's plan to bring judgment on the uh, sexually pervert, rebellious idolaters in Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't that God judges all sin that way, but this was a culture that had had lived that way, and it was bringing, coming to a fruition in the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so God had to cleanse the land. It isn't, you know, one of the mistakes I think a lot of fundamentalists and evangelicals have made is to treat uh, homosexuality as some sort of unique sin. In terms of its consequences... It is different. It is destructive to a nation and destructive to a culture. But so is murder. And so are other things that each of their own way overt sins can have uh, gross consequences uh, for a culture if they are permissively allowed to continue. But what you see in homosexuality is just a, a lack of sexual restraint, but in a different direction than that of shall we say, the run-of-the-mill run, run of the mill fornication, where it involves heterosexuality outside the bounds of marriage. And in that, that form of lewdness and uh, immorality, which was often common in the fertility re- religions and the mystery religions of the pagan cultures in the Middle East, whether you talk about the fertility gods and goddesses that existed at the time of ancient Israel, the worship of Baal, and uh, uh, Astarte, which is another form of the word Ishtar, Babylonian fertility goddess. Uh, these these same practices and gods and goddesses showed up in Greek, uh, Greece and Rome as well. They had different names, such as Venus or Aphrodite. And in the mystery religions with uh, uh, Dionysius and the uh, Sibyl Addis cult, they they picked up these same kinds of fertility. Uh, religion uh, uh, modus operandi. They did the same thing. It it was all about sexual gratification as a way to to worship God because ultimately when you reject God as the external creator we replace him with ourselves. We become God and so if we're going to worship the real God which is me then we're going to gratify ourselves. That's the most perverse extension of where that goes. And so this was what was going on in Sodom. It wasn't because it was an unforgivable sin. It wasn't because Jesus didn't die for that sin. It's because its cultural and social consequences had reached a point where it was a malignant cancer in that area of the world, and God needed to surgically remove it so that the land could be uh, purified. This is later seen in what God does with the Canaanites and why they all had to be killed in the uh, before the Israelites could settle there. But as Abraham learns of these plans, he knows that his nephew Lot and his wife and his two daughters live there, and so he is trying to uh, ha, learn from God what the limits are. God, would you uh, withhold your judgment if there were 50 righteous in uh, Sodom? If there were uh, 30 righteous? If there were 20 righteous? And he works it down until uh, God. he convinces God to give Lot the opportunity to leave which is what uh, eventually takes place that that uh, lot is able to escape, and in peter he 's referred to in second Peter as righteous lot. We often think of lot in negative senses because of some of the sin that was involved, but the scriptures describe him as righteous lot he was He was saved, but in the middle of that, as Abraham is working through his rationale with God, he is talking to him about what his plan is going to be. And he says, as a parenthetical in this, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And that's the principle that when we look at events in the world where it doesn't seem like God is being fair or just or somehow he's forgotten about us as we experience this injustice, that is what was going on then. That's what happened in the life of Christ. And we have to be reminded that God is in control. God is the supreme Judge of the universe. And just because we don't see how he's bringing the judgment down on people doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And just because it doesn't happen in this life doesn't mean it's not going to happen in the next life. And so that principle there is that the judge of all the earth will do right because he is right. Now I want to fix this next slide. This happened. I had some problems with this today. It reformatted everything and trying to uh, get things back in order here. And so the rationale that he gives to encourage those that are going through this unrighteous, uh, blasphemous, slanderous mocking, he says, he reminds them in verse 5, "...they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." They will give an account to him. That is your primary statement here. And then the him is described further as the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is pictured here as the one who will judge eventually, and so they will be held accountable. They're not going to get away with it, even though you may think they do. Even though it may appear that at the after World War II that there were probably uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Germans who appeared to get away with the Holocaust. There wasn't the time, the effort, the money to track down everyone. Many of them managed to escape. At least 9,000 uh, escaped to South America. We don't know how many others escaped, and it appears that they got away with it, but God is going to hold them accountable. That's the foundation to understand. Same is true in our with the injustices we experience. Now, this idea of judgment clearly comes up throughout First Peter, as I pointed out last time, First 1 Peter uh, 117. God uh, is the one who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Now there he is talking to believers. To know that your work will be evaluated. That's not talking in terms of your eternal destiny, but as we'll see in a minute, that is in terms of the evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. So, this is a, a, a motivation for how we should live our lives here in this earth. Uh, Romans 2 6 talks about who will render to each one according to their deeds. So, there's this accountability that runs through. Uh, through the Scripture. And as we'll see when, when we look at a passage like Romans two six, that's talking about uh, unbelievers. But it's different. They're not judged at the judgment seat of Christ. For them, they're judged at the great white throne judgment. And again, their evaluation will be according to their works. And we have to learn that the reason that both believers are judged according to their works, not to get into heaven, but in terms of rewards, and Unbelievers are judged according to their works at the great white throne judgment. It's because, as I pointed out this last Sunday, and we'll work on again this Sunday as well as today, it's sort of a double feature and you get an encore from part of what we get to tonight on Sunday morning, is that when Christ died on the cross, the certificate of debt against us was nailed to the cross and canceled. Okay, that's the word there for forgiveness. It is the abolishment of a death, uh, a debt uh, that took place when Christ died on the cross. So sin isn't the issue. It's not the issue for the believer at the judgment seat of Christ, and it's not an issue for the unbeliever at the great white throne judgment. And we'll look at both of those as we get there. I finished up last time looking at uh, Matthew 12:36. I hear a lot of people quote this out of context and scares people. You'll give an account for every word that came out of your mouth. So you better be careful what you say. Well, he's talking to a particular context. I pointed this out last time. He's he's in a argument, confrontation rather, with the Pharisees. They have rejected who he is. And it is those words of rejection that are the idle words in the context, okay? It's not just saying some off-color joke or, or hitting your thumb with a hammer and saying some uh, profanity or whatever else it might be. That is not the context of this passage. It is talking about accountability in relation to words related to the acceptance or rejection of Jesus. That's clear in the next verse. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So justification isn't based on our language and how we talk. It's interesting how different words that are unacceptable today were at one time very acceptable in the English language. For example, you go back to the original King James. I covered this back when we were uh, we were going through 1 Samuel. It translated one of the lines in, in 1 Samuel talking about the number of men in um, in the army as the number of men who pisseth against a wall. Now, that's just not going to flow. That is not elegant enough for modern English translations—that's not socially acceptable. You go back to—you uh, go back to the Canterbury Tales, and you're reading Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales, and he uses—I will tone it down a little—but he uses the word for excrement that is completely unacceptable today. Uh, when he is, in fact, he is describing a a parson or priest on the Canterbury tale and uses that word in the process of describing it, by the time you get to the um, King James Bible, that word is no longer socially acceptable. It was socially acceptable later on in the period between then and now, but it's not socially acceptable today. So language changes. So people get funny ideas about this and Pastors try to make people feel guilty over this. But the words that justify our belief in Jesus Christ as Savior, accepting Him as the one who died on the cross for our sins, that's what justifies. That which condemns, because uh, we're, we're condemned already, is that we reject that He is the Messiah and the Son of God. So what we come to is that there are these judgments and accountability, So there are nine judgments. In the past, I had eight judgments here, but I considered at that time that the judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet at the end of the tribulation being cast into the lake of fire was one judgment. But it's two judgments. It's one for the Antichrist and one for the false prophet, one for the first beast, one for the second beast. So that made it nine judgments. just depends on how you want to count that. So we look at our time frame in terms of dispensations, and we're now living in the church age after the cross. The church age ends with the rapture, and then there will be the judgment seat of Christ. But the first judgment is actually at the cross. At the cross, Christ is judged for our sins in our place. After the rapture, there is the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. It happens, I believe, before the events of the tribulation unfold. The reason for that is when you get into Revelation 5 and you have this heavenly chorus, you're told in chapter 4 that the 24 elders before the throne cast their crowns before the throne. The word there that's used for crown in the Greek is stephanos, not diademos, a Stephanos crown is the type of crown that a athletic competitor or a military hero would receive. It was made out of laurel leaves or oak leaves or ivy leaves or some other kind of leaves leaves, uh, leaves like that. And it wasn't the crown of royalty. That's a diademas crown. So the crowns that the 24 elders are casting before the throne are wreaths that are victorious. That are rewards for victory. The elders would be those who represent, like our congresspeople, represent the people of the country. It's not just sort of an idealistic, idealized number. It is that, uh, just as in the Old Testament, there were 24 divisions of Levites and priests who would serve in the temple and those in each division would serve at their particular time because there were so many uh, Levites. And so you had 24 divisions of priests and Levites, you have 24 divisions of the church, those in each division serve at their particular time. That is the, that's the idea there. So these are the first two judgments. That's when the Bema Seat occurs. Then you have the tribulation, and then Jesus Christ returns to the earth. So you have the uh, resurrection of uh, Christ at the cross. You have a resurrection of the saved at the rapture. See, this thing got all um, sort of out of kilter because as I was trying to fix the slides, I did something and all of a sudden everything sort of got uh, twisted out of order. Well, I'm not going to be able to fix that easy, so we'll just have to deal with it. let me rebuild this line quickly. Okay, you ha- those are the resurrections that occur. You have the resurrection in the middle of the tribulation of the of the two witnesses. You have the rapture here. You have the resurrection of the two witnesses here, and then you have the resurrection of Old Testament saints there. That's all considered the first uh, first resurrection. Then you have a judgment that occurs when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth. You have the that's a picture there of a sheep and a goat. The sheep is on the right hand, goats on the left hand, and then you have two more judgments. You have the judgment of the Antichrist and judgment of the false prophet as they are sent to the lake of fire uh, you have so this is the description of what happens here. Um, the sheep and the goat judgment has to do with the surviving Gentiles and surviving Uh, Jews. There are judgments for them at the end of the tribulation. Then there'll be judgments for Old Testament saints that are resurrected and also uh, tribulation martyrs that uh, died during the tribulation. So those are those various judgments. Then you have the millennial kingdom. Millennial kingdom. You have the second resurrection at the end. That's the unsaved. And uh, you have the great white uh, throne judgment, uh, the unsaved dead, who, and then Satan, after he's released, then he is cast into the lake of fire. So that, is, that sort of summarizes those particular judgments. So every time we see the word judgment or accountability like we have here, we have to decide which one is being talked about. Or sometimes it could just be talking about The general principle that whether you're at the Bema seat or whether you're at the great white throne judgment, you're eventually, everybody is going to give an account to him who is ready to judge the quick or the living and the dead. So that it may just be a general principle that no matter who they are, they will give accountability to someone at some point, either to the Lord Jesus Christ at the Bema Seat or to God, or to, I think, the Lord Jesus Christ also at the Great White Throne Judgment. So let's talk about this first judgment, which is the Bema Seat. Uh, This word is even used today. We refer to the platform up here at the front of the church as a dais. That's one word that's used. But in... In a synagogue, they refer to the front area where the scrolls are kept uh, as the bima. To this day, it just refers to a raised platform, and it often refers to a raised platform where a magistrate would sit, someone in authority would sit, uh, or a member of the tribunal would sit, uh, carrying out justice. A tribunal is a judicial or, or court function. In judicial settings, uh, that's true. And then in the Olympics, this is the place where judges would sit. Now, here's a picture. Uh, up there, you have the Acro Corinth. That's the high place at Corinth. In the foreground, you have the remains of the Bema seat at Corinth. This is where the proconsul uh, would judge. And this is where Paul would have been brought uh, in Corinth. And there, there you see another picture, and you can see the sign uh, down here on the wall that's been posted as the Bema. And this is uh, another view of it, of the remains of it here. So this was an imposing place where uh, the uh, proconsul or the, tri- uh, or the tribunal would meet and announce judgments on whatever cases were brought before them in Corinth. So that's the basic meaning of the word. It can also have other meanings, which we'll see in, in a little in a little bit further on. John chapter 5, Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father and in terms of judgment. He says, "...for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even though so the Son gives life to whom he will." It's an important Trinitarian passage indicating that both the Son and the Father give life. But, in different contexts, uh, it talks about the Father as being the one who ultimately raises the dead, and Jesus is the one who gives life that is, he is the one who gives that spiritual life that ultimately leads to uh, physical life and resurrection john five twenty two for the Father judges no one now that's an important statement there. If the father judges no one he says but has committed all judgment to the son that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who receives this delegated responsibility from the father to be the judge he will be the ju- that's why I said he will be the judge at the great white throne judgment he's the judge at the judgment seat of Christ and why does he judge us as human beings this is a principle we derive from our study of Hebrews and that is a principle that comes that also influenced the rise of the jury system in uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, jurisprudence, and that is a trial by peers, by those who are of your own uh, social status. You're not being tried by those who are above you or below you, but those who are your your peers Jesus Christ judges us he became a man it, it, in his humanity he li- lived this life yet without sin so we are not tried by god the father we are not tried by an angel we are tried by jesus christ the god man emphasis on his his humanity so all judgment is committed to the son that all should honor the son just as they honor the Father. Notice the equality of Son to Father. Emphasis on the Trinity, that the three members of the Trinity are co-equal. They have the same essence, but they are distinct in role and personality. We are to honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So those who blaspheme Jesus... Blaspheme the Father with the same breath. Most assuredly, John says, I say to you, or Jesus is speaking here, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So there he is talking about not the judgment seat of Christ, but the judgment that determines whether you go to heaven or whether you go to the lake of fire. And the issue there is hearing the word, the gospel, and believing in him who sent me. Over 95 times the word believe, the verb, is used in the gospel of John, and it's never qualified. It doesn't say, hears my word, and genuinely or sincerely or... Uh, honestly believes in me. It doesn't say he who hears my word and invites me into their heart. He who hears my word and commits their life to me. It doesn't say any of that. It is people who read these kinds of things into the Bible, but they're not there. This isn't what the text says. It says simply believe. Now, there's a couple of synonyms for believe. There is receiving Jesus, accepting Jesus as your Savior. Those are synonyms that are biblical. But not committing. Commit is not the same as believing. Those are two completely different word groups, two completely different, different concepts. In verse 25, he goes on to say, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, the point of this passage is to show that Jesus is the one who does uh, does the judging. Verse 27, and he, that goes back to verse, verse 26, As the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him, who has given him? The Father has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Now we remember that title, Son of Man. Everybody should be able to tell you where is it found. It's found in Daniel 7. It is. It emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Son of God emphasizes the deity of Jesus. This is an idiom that is used in Hebrew. So if somebody's a fool, they're called the son of a fool. If they're a murderer, they're called the son of a murderer. If they're divine, they're called the son of God. If they are human, they're called the son of man. Uh, Ezekiel was also referred to as the son of man, but in Daniel 7, you have a heavenly scene where the son of man comes to the ancient of days, who's the father and is given the kingdom. Because it is a man, the descendant of David, who is going to establish the kingdom and rule on the earth. So, as part of his role as the Son of Man, he's going to execute judgment. This is what happens with those judgments at the end of the tribulation. It is the Son of Man who judges, it's the Son of Man who sends the Antichrist and false prophet to the lake of fire. He's the one who judges the surviving Jews and Gentiles. He's the one who judges the Old Testament saints at that point. And he's the one who judges the tribulation saints at that point. But the Word of God doesn't really give us any details about that other than knowing that that is when this occurs. So the one who judges is going to be, at the bema seat, is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Why it is referred to as? the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the bema seat, literally in the Greek, the bema seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So he's right there in Corinth. He's talking about this to the Corinthians, and they can... Take a walk later in the morning and walk by the Bema Seat right there in the center of uh, of Corinth, and there you have a picture from several years ago where I am standing there teaching about the Bema Seat, First Corinthians chapter three, in front of the Bema Seat. This is located in Corinth. Here's a map of the uh, of Greece. You have the Achaia, which is the northern part up here. Two key locations to keep in mind, Delphi, which is here in the north central part. This is where the Oracle of Delphi was located. This was part of a mystery religion. She was called the Oracle. It was a young woman who had a spirit who indwelt her called a Puthanas spirit, like our word python. And she had a temple, and in this temple, these gases came up from a hole in the ground, and she would get, go into these trances, and, and she would speak in ecstatic utterance as the god, the Puthanas god, entered into her, and then she spoke in this ecstatic utterance. That's why the Corinthians got this idea that speaking like that made you close to God. That's how pagan the charismatics are. See, they've totally misunderstood this whole concept in First Corinthians um, 13, 12, 13, and 14 by, identi- by identifying uh, what the Corinthians had done was they had misidentified the spiritual gift of speaking in a legitimate human language with speaking the gibberish, the ecstatic utterance that was in the mystery religions. Some time ago, I heard somebody say, actually, I've heard several charismatics say, well, when I pray in tongues, my prayers are more accurate, and God answers them. And I asked this fellow, I said, if you don't know what you're praying for, how do you know that God answers? Important question because they had no idea. They didn't understand the language. So th- these places on this map, Olympia, Nemea, uh, right outside of Corinth there, or next to it is Ismia, because this is the isthmus of Corinth. This pen- peninsula down here is called the Peloponnesian p- Peninsula. Uh, this was where Sparta was. So these blue dots here, Delphi, Athens, Ismia, Nemea, Olympia, this is where they had Olympic Games. And they had built these stadiums. And here's the one in Delphi. And as you look at this, this is a background for a lot of uh, Paul's metaphors. For example, in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about the Christian life as running the race. And running so as you're not disqualified. doesn't mean you lose salvation. You just don't win the reward. You don't win the prize. But uh, here's a picture of the stadium. Uh, Across the way, looking the other way, you could look down from this Uh, Mountainside, and you could see the training area where the athletes trained. So this is the uh, stadium where they ran, where they uh, carried out the athletic contests. And right here, you can't see it real well, but right about here, there looks a little different. Something a little different. This is where the judges sat. This was the bema. This is the, uh, and you see this in various stadiums. For those of you who are going to Israel or who have been to Israel, when you go to Caesarea by the Sea, they have this huge uh, area out there where they ran the chariot races, and there's also a section in the stands that's a little bit different, and that's the Bema. So these were the judges, those who evaluated the performance of the athletes. So we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive. And that is the word that indicates that you get something back. There's an exchange there. It's very similar to the concept of accountability to receive something for what, for the thing that you have done. In, account, in, in the term of giving an account for something, it's really two words, give, plus an account. But the Greek word for account is the word logos, which can mean a thing or a word or a message, but it refers to you're going to give a a, a statement about something was the idea. So it's a similar concept. You receive something back for what you have done. And here it's described as something that's either um, that you have done. It's the word proso which isn't poieo, something you may have done once or twice, but it's proso. And I think the, the difference is important. Proso is something you have practice. Same kind of thing you see with this word in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses uh, 17, 18, 19, the, the list of sins, the works of the flesh. And those who so, those who practice these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean they're not saved; it's they're not going to receive rewards of uh, of uh, responsibility and leadership in the kingdom of God uh, when it comes. So th- then, it's according to what he has practiced, whether good or bad. The word for good indicates intrinsic value. That which you do while walking by the Spirit, or bad, doesn't mean evil or sinful. It means of an inferior quality. That's the works of the flesh. Works of the flesh can be moral, just like the Pharisees. They were very moral. They were unsaved, just like many cult members or religious legalists today. They they do things that are good, but they have no eternal value because they're not produced by the Holy Spirit. So we're evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ according to what we do, whether it has good of intrinsic value from walking by the Spirit or that which is the just morality by walking in the flesh. You can be very, very moral and have the appearance of spirituality. You can read your Bible in, this, in the flesh. You can witness in the flesh. You can come to Bible class or church in the flesh. You can do all kinds of things that look right in the flesh, But you're not walking by the Spirit. You're out of fellowship. You're walking according to uh, the sin nature. So what we learn from that passage is that there will be an evaluation of every believer's life. That we will be taken at the rapture. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain are snatched up to be with the Lord who are in the air. We're raptured. That's where that word is found. Snatched up in the Greek is harpazo, and it refers to, uh, it's translated by the Latin word uh, rapio, which means to be snatched up. So rapture is a biblical word. It's just not in the Greek Bible, but it is in the Latin uh, New Testament. The issue at the judgment seat of Christ isn't sin or salvation, but it's to reward faithfulness. That's the criteria in the Christian life. You can be an evangelist and see three people get saved. God is not going to reward you or take away reward because you had three and somebody else had 3,000. It's whether you were faithful there have been many situations where people have been in ministry in difficult straits. I knew a guy that I was in seminary with who took his family and they lived in the city of the dead in Cairo. And over the period of probably 12 or 15 years they were there, they saw just a handful of people saved. I was at um, at. In seminary, one class, I had a man who was back on furlough, and he lived in just a very, very small place that probably wasn't, it was much smaller than probably even what's up here on the on the podium. And he lived in the slums of New Delhi, and he probably saw just a handful of, of Hindus get saved over 20 years of ministry there. But the criterion is not how many you get saved. The criterion is not how many show up at Bible class or how many show up at church or how big or small your church is. The criteria is faithfulness, as we'll see. That's what the Lord's going to be looking at. Uh, Third, the judgment seat of Christ is only for believers. And fourth, the judgment seat is described in cultural terms uh, as... <clears throat> you know, as a bema seat, and that could mean either a uh, could describe a place of civil justice or a the seat of judges in an athletic contest. These are just metaphors to help us understand it. Now, the other thing that uh, you should evaluate, or we should evaluate here, is in First um, Corinthians chapter three, verse twelve. 1 Corinthians chapter three. Uh, verse 12. So turn back with me there. I don't have slides on this up on the screen. As I said, I was having some technical challenges today. I don't know. There must have been um, something going on somewhere because there were a lot of things that didn't go right. Little things to big things in my life today and in the lives of several other people today. So just one, one of those one of those days. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. In chapter 3, verse 12, we're told uh, God, at this point, Paul is using the illustration of a building to describe a person's life. Some people have made the mistake that this building relates to the local church. He's not talking about the local church here. He's talking about individual, an individual life, that you produce something in your life as you live your life through the decisions that you make and the decisions I make. And he says here, he says that we have a foundation that is laid, and that like any building, there's a foundation, and the foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 12, he says, for no other foundation can can anyone lay Then that which is laid, so it's present reality, for these carnal Corinthians, they've laid a foundation which is Jesus Christ. Now the issue is, they're not building on that very well, and so he is describing that, he says, but each one's, he says here, now if anyone builds on this foundation, he's going to use a variety of uh, building tools and construction products he will use gold silver and precious stones and he will use wood hay and straw that which has enduring value is represented by the gold the silver and the precious stones some years ago i had somebody ask me well what exactly and precisely do they re- do they describe what are what of our works are the gold which of our works are the silver and which of our works are the are the precious stones. And I said, it's an illustration. There, Jesus said, nowhere does the Bible say, well, the gold represents these five activities and the silver represents those five. That, that's somebody who tries to make an illustration walk on all fours, and that's poor hermeneutics. Together, they represent those works which have enduring value the works that are done by walking by the Spirit. The wood, hay, and straw does not have enduring value. The wood will rot. Um, Hay and straw will burn up easily. Uh, They will not last the tests of time. And so we go through our life building on, on what Christ has done in saving us. We can't self-evaluate on these things. We don't have the knowledge to self-evaluate. We know some things. We know that, that you witnessed to that person last week, and and you really weren't uh, walking by the Spirit at the time because you were reacting to something they said out of arrogance, and you basically wanted to win the argument about Jesus Rather than uh, lead them to the truth, and somewhere along the way, it was more about your argument getting won rather than them getting saved. We've all had that kind of experience. So you can witness for wrong motivation, and God sometimes is very gracious and still uses it to bring people to the Lord. But one day, all this work will become evident in verse 13. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. That day is the day of Christ. It's the day of judgment, of the judgment seat of Christ. That day will declare it. It will make it manifest. It will become evident. Now, how does it become evident? Uh, It's not saying here that, okay, everybody's going to see the pile of manure that your life produced. Uh, it says that that the end result is go- what's going to become evident here. The day will declare because it will be revealed by fire. The fire reveals something. It doesn't reveal the garbage. It reveals the gold, silver, and precious stones. The idea that we have here in uh, making it clear is that the Greek word in the passage is dokimazo, which means... Uh, to test something, to evaluate it, to see what is good. And so it is tested for that reason. To, uh, when it says the fire will test, that's, that's dokimazo, to make evident that which has eternal value. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So what happens is you just take all of this that's been built and you put the torch to it and some people built mostly with wood, hay, and straw. Some people built mostly with gold, silver, and precious stones and after the fire is what reveals what's there. Okay, so it's not about revealing the wood, hay, and straw. It's about revealing the gold, silver, and precious stones and whatever's left, whether it's a you know, uh, uh, one-tenth of a kilogram or whether it is 10 kilograms is going to determine uh, rewards. And so there are those who will be rewarded and when the fire tests or exposes each one's work, that is in terms of its value, uh, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So the reward is based on what God the Holy Spirit produced in your life. You you just make the decision to walk by the Spirit, but it's the Spirit who produces it. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. He will lose reward. Rewards that he would have received are not going to be distributed. He will lose rewards, but he won't lose salvation. See, what happens is, He suffers the loss of reward, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. There will be those that enter into heaven and have eternal life who have absolutely no rewards whatsoever because their life had no spiritual growth after salvation. They never learned the word. They never heard the word. They never grew. There's nothing rewardable in their life. And some people today say that if you don't have anything to show for it, then you weren't ever saved. But see, that violates what is said here. What is said here is they will suffer loss. They won't have anything. and But they will be saved yet as through fire. And then there's an additional motivation here. In the next verse, it says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? See, that's who produces it. Now there's some people who say the temple of God here is the church because they misidentified the metaphor. And I was having in conversation with a well-known uh, expositor of Scripture that y'all probably have met or known at one time, and I'm not going to use his name. And he took that position, and there are many theologians that do, that 1 Corinthians 3.16 is the local church, and that 6.13, when it says almost the same thing, is the individual. And he said, but it says you here. Uh, he's talking to uh, you all. I said, yeah, or it's you singular here. He said you. And it's talking about, oh, no, 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 excuse me. I'm I misremembering. It's you all. Uh, and so it's talking about the corporate body. I said, yes, but if you pay careful attention to the second person plurals in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, Everything, every mandate that Paul states, every command that he states is expected to be fulfilled by each individual, but because he's talking to a group of people, he always expresses it as a plural command. Y'all do this, y'all do this, y'all do this. He's not talking about this is what the corporate body does. If you look at all those commands, they have to do with what the individuals within that corporate body are supposed to do. So you can't say that the... Uh, you here because it's plural is referring to the corporate church. It's referring to the individuals there. It refers to each individual. It's a corp. It's it, in that sense. It's not talking about the whole body, but each person uh, within the body. And so it goes on to say, if anyone defiled the temple of God, God will uh, destroy him. And that doesn't mean he'll lose salvation. It means that he will. God will bring harm to him. It's another word for discipline. God will bring discipline on us because we are not sanctifying that temple, and that is through confession of sin, purification, cleansing, forgiveness, and going forward. So this is the first kind of judgment that Peter could be referring to. It's clearly the one that he refers to earlier in 117, but here it is referring to Um, it's possible that those who are blaspheming these believers may be uh, other believers who are out of fellowship. But the other judgment that shows up as we go through this is the judgment that comes at the end of the tribulation, and that's the one that is described as the great white throne judgment, which is the judgment for all unsaved believers before the eternal state now we'll come back and talk about that next time uh, several times in the bible you have these passages that simply talk about a sort of a judgment is coming it could apply to either believers or unbelievers john five twenty nine says those who will <clears throat> come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life The good deed in John is believing on Jesus. And those who committed the evil deeds in John, that refers to rejection of Jesus, uh, to a resurrection of judgment. So that affirms two different judgments at the end. Daniel 12.12 is the Old Testament passage that talks about this, that many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. These kinds of passages are just summarizing. They're not specifying one judgment over another. They're just stating that ultimately everybody, depending on whether you're an Old Testament saint, church age saint, tribulation saint, whether you survive the tribulation, whether you are a martyr in the tribulation everybody eventually is going to be held accountable, which is basically uh, Peter's point in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verses 5 and 6, that there is a judgment coming. So next time, we'll look at the great white throne judgment. But let me give you a little preview of something interesting. Had a conversation yesterday with Bob Bolander. Bob's going to give a very interesting paper. I don't know if I would agree with it. It's a fascinating paper, though. He has uncovered a remarkable view that was somewhat popular. We don't know how popular, but somewhat popular among dispensationalists a hundred years ago. The last person to publish on it was Clarence Larkin. Some of you have seen his book on dispensational truth. And he and many others, good men, like James Gray, who was the president of Moody Bible Institute, and a number of others, held a position that there was a dispensation after the great white throne judgment. They called it the dispensation of the fullness of times. Now, first time you hear this, which may be now you're going, that sounds strange. That was my reaction. It was interesting that I had a student in Kiev ask me about this. That afternoon when I got back to the room, Bob had sent me his paper on this, and I went, okay, I've heard about this position now from two people in the same day. When I got back to the U.S., I called a a person I know who lives out of town, and uh, she's an older lady, very, very, very sharp, And uh, she had received as a gift from a donation to some ministry, a copy of Dispensational Truth. And she read it and she said, Robbie, it seems like he's got another dispensation in there. So I had talked to Jim Myers. He never heard of this. I talked to Tommy Ice. He never heard of it. I talked to about four or five other guys, including myself, who all read Larkin years ago. None of us clicked to that. Of course, I read it when I was right out of college and not too adept at all. I wasn't seeing all the details because I was trying to get the overall picture. But anyway, so Bob and I were having this conversation about the millennial kingdom and what happens in this huge revolt that takes place. And so he raised a point, and I had never you know, really focused on this. I don't think I've taught anything one way or the other. But Revelation 20 verse 9 says that there's a revolt that occurs. The Gog and Magog revolt at the end of the millennium that they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Hmm. Yeah, okay, verse 8. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And verse 8, and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle. Okay? What do you think of when you think of battle? Guns. Tanks, airplanes, swords, arrows. What? But Isaiah talks about the beginning of the millennial kingdom that our spears will be turned into into uh, our swords into into uh, plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. And man will what make war no more. So for a thousand years, nobody's going to be making war. There are no weapons of war. There's no weapons industry. So what how and it says they will make war no more. That's a definitive statement never again. So how do you handle the fact that verse 9 says that they will um surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. See they are going to where was it they'll they'll gather together to battle. Now I've never drilled down on that. But I think that they're gathering together against God. There are many different ways you can fight without necessarily engaging in armament. And so there are massive uh, collusion there against God. They're as numerable as the sand of the sea. Think about that. If you listen to Bob's paper, he'll make some good points out of that, I think, that, that haven't been emphasized enough. As Jesus rules in the kingdom, we've pointed this out many times, with a rod of iron because there's a lot of unbelievers who want to revolt against Jesus' rule in the kingdom, okay? So it's not really perfect environment. They're going to gather together to battle to oppose Jesus, and then God's not going to fight them. There really isn't a battle. There is no war. And um, God is going to incinerate them with fire uh, from heaven in verse 9. And that's when the judgment Satan is cast into the lake of fire where the beast and false prophet are. Now we'll come back and look at that next time. But I just wanted to point that out uh, as sort of a preview of his paper. After we got back from Kev, as you know, I have a group of pastors who meet online every week. We have around 20 to 24, 25 that show up. And we have, some, have had some really good studies. We have a couple of guys with PhDs all the way down to those who've never had any formal training. And uh, so I had Bob present this paper to the group, and we picked it apart. And none of us have had the time to really drill down on all of the exegesis. But the conclusion, as stated by one man in the group who's got his Ph.D., was this isn't a flaky position. It is not an off-the-wall position It is not inconsistent with dispensationalism, but I don't know if the exegesis is there to support it. It may be a legitimate theological conclusion, which sometimes happens, but if you can't prove it exegetically, you can't assert it dogmatically. And so that's where we are. Bill sits in on that class on Friday mornings and listens. Isn't that right, Bill? That's the conclusion. It may take me, it's taken, took Bob about 15 years to study his way through all of these issues because there there very little was written about it, and I'm not sure the exegesis is really there. It may be, but it's not a wrong position, per se, but, and I don't know that it impacts anything else, but it's interesting, and he's resurrected a significant dispensational view that pretty much got blown out of the water, we believe, by the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible. When did that happen? A hundred years ago, same year that Clarence Larkin was the last to publish on this view, the Schofield Reference Bible was out. And even to this day, dispensationalists always want to force you into using the schematic from the Schofield Reference Bible for the dispensations. So it'll be interesting. You will be fascinated by that particular study. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study and to learn your word and to focus on the fact that we will be held accountable one day day, and we need to live each day in light of eternity, living because we desire to serve you. And as Paul says in the very next chapter after 1 Corinthians 3, that what's (coughs) necessary for a steward, we're all stewards, we've all been granted responsibilities from you. What's necessary for a steward is not that he be productive, not that he uh, lead hundreds or thousands to the Lord, not that he teaches multitudes, but simply that he be found faithful, faithful in serving you. Challenge us with this in Christ's name. Amen.